Please be seated. Good evening to you. Psalm 3 this evening, if you're with us tonight in our Sunday evenings is our journey through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisle with, the, uh, with Bibles right now. And if you just wave to them, they'll get one into your hands. We'd like everyone to have a Bible. God wants everyone to have a Bible, so... Uh, Avail yourself of that, and if you don't own one, then that's your Bible uh, to keep and to take home and make a good friend uh, of it. Psalm 3, we have a heading to this particular song. Uh, Sometimes we're told a little bit of the context in which the psalm is uh, written, and uh, sometimes the author of the psalm, uh, most often David, is listed, but when Uh, When that kind of subtitle is there, it helps us to understand the context in which this particular psalm was written. And it tells us that it's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And David writes, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. It's a funny thing, you know, it's interesting. One of the great things about the Psalms of David is that uh, Psalms like this where David, uh, where it is identified the uh, experience in his life that birthed the Psalm, it really gives us insight not only into his heart and what he was going through at that particular time in his life when, in this case, a great, great trial was introduced into his life, but it's a great revelation for all of us as Christians when we have kind of that witness and understanding of this is what was happening in their life, this is the song or the worship or the relationship with God that was birthed out of it that would not otherwise exist. There'd be a blank between Psalm 2 and Psalm 4 without that experience that David had. Now, David, uh, you'd think that he might have, uh, you know, for two wooden nickels, he would have uh, put it in and gladly have bypassed that chapter in his life. I don't think that it's true. But how much would we be robbed, and let alone his own relationship with the Lord, would we be robbed as God's people all through the ages where this psalm is, is such a great encouragement and has been a great encouragement uh, to us? What David is in the middle of is he just woke up one day. It was just like a day like any other day. I mean, you never know what's going to happen in a day like any other day. He just wakes up one day. And then all of a sudden he gets news that his son Absalom is now going to make a thrust for uh, the kingdom, wants to become the king, wants to kill his father David. He has um, secretly for a time taken some of David's close associates and he's made them a part of the rebellion. And so one day uh, David is going about his business. Word comes in and says, Absalom is leading a coup. He's leading a revolution against you. David recognized that this revolt was not something to be scoffed at for all of his power and all of his history with God's people, that this was dangerous. And so he gathered up his family. He gathered his closest friends and literally fled with the clothes on their back out of Jerusalem toward the Judean wilderness. It was the only way he felt he was going to survive 
this particular kind of murderous overthrow by his son. So there's this betrayal. You have he's being uh, dethroned in an attempt to do so, and then a betrayal that is hard to put into words. I suppose I don't claim that I have ever known betrayal like this before in my life, not to this degree. Maybe just a few of us in this room could say that we could. He's betrayed by his son. He's betrayed by some of his closest friends all through the years. They've joined the revolt. And then the thing that really hurts him, and he he uses the word many in these opening verses, is the number of people that joined in this rebellion against him. David has been a great king for the children of Israel the greatest king that the children of Israel ever had. And he will only be surpassed by the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus himself. So David had sacrificially done a lot in order for that kingdom to be the kingdom that it was, the blessing that it was. And then he gets this news at the first opportunity, this great large number of people decide we're going to jettison Uh, David, and we're going to join with Absalom in the rebellion. And so this sense of disloyalty, the sense of betrayal uh, really comes out in, in the psalm here. And what they were saying about him was probably the most hurtful thing that they could say concerning David. David was a man after God's own heart, and they were communicating, verse 2, there is no help for him in God. And so the people were thoroughly convinced that this revolt against David is so great, it's so powerful, so well organized that not only is there no hope for David in holding on to his kingdom and his position in man, but even God isn't going to be able to help him in all of this. And so this is the whole kind of thing that he's facing, the rumor that God had even abandoned him and withdrawn uh, from him. And so as everyone looked at David, this is kind of the miserable circumstance that he was in beyond the help of both man and God. And yet, as we know f- from the historical books uh, of, of the Old Testament, that David does end up outliving the situation and outliving uh, virtually all of his uh, enemies. So we ask ourselves, all right, David was in that particular place, but what in the world got him through? What happened between him and God that allowed him not just to get through it physically, but to get through it mentally, to get through it emotionally, to get through it spiritually? And then one of the hardest things of all, to be restored to the throne and not have this great bitterness against the people that he was ruling. And he retakes the throne ultimately, and he very faithfully... uh, administers the throne for the rest of his life really as a service unto the Lord, not so much for the people. So what in the world got him through is, is the question. What caused him to survive and, and who in the world and where do you turn at a time like that in life and a trial like that? And David reveals it to us in verse 3, but, remember the word but in the Bible, it's a wonderful word. We can just say, but the word but means forget everything that's been said before. Now listen to what's being said now. So you got all of these people, all this power, all this might, all of this organization piled up against David. But David said, but you, speaking to God, 
God plus one is a majority. God plus none is a majority. He said, but you, O God, are a shield for me. David knew what a shield was. He had been a man of war from his youth. And he knew that it was an instrument of protection. And he calls out to God, and he's, and he's just confident in the fact that God is going to divinely protect him in, in this situation. God had called him to be the king of Israel. And so now it's God's responsibility to, to stay faithful to that calling in David's life. And so David said, you are a shield to me. And then he said, declared God to be my glory. And I tell you, I really do love that when he calls God my glory. When Absalom and these other people come in, and Absalom was, you can't even say his name in the same sentence of his father, spiritually speaking. I mean, there's just, they were in two entirely different leagues. And David had, he had a couple of bad chapters in his life to be sure, but he loved God and, uh, and was faithful to God's calling upon his life and, and didn't run away from God's calling even when in the humiliation of his sin and his, in the repentance of it, it would have been the easier thing to do for him. But he takes and he calls God my glory. And Absalom gets up that morning and he leads this rebellion. As David flees the city, he leaves all the riches, all the gold. He leaves the throne. He leaves the robe. He leaves all of the power. He leaves all of these trappings of being a king. And Absalom thinks he's taken his father's glory. And he hasn't even remotely come near to what David considered to be his glory. David's glory was none of those things. When he fled that city, he did not leave his glory in Jerusalem. His glory was God. His glory was his relationship with God, relationship that no one could bring to an end. Nobody could rob him of that relationship. And so he speaks of God. God, they feel like they've robbed me of all the glory in my life, and they don't realize they haven't even remotely come close to touching what I consider to be the glory of my life. Who is you? And then he speaks to God and declares him to be, and the one who lifts my head. And it's one of my favorite descriptions of God in all of the Bible, and that is he is the lifter of our head. You put David in that situation that he's in. I mean, his, his whole world is just spinning emotionally. I mean, it's like he just has fallen through a trap door and is just in a free fall, the Tower of Terror, Disney World or wherever it is. So it's just like a free fall, and then mentally all of these things are going on in, 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 his, uh, in his life here, and, and everything's crashing in uh, around him. And then here he declares what got him through, and what got him through was that the Lord lifted up his head. You ever have, uh, those of you who have children, and now they're grown, and now you get to do it with their grandchildren. But sometimes a child will find themselves in what we would consider to be a comparatively small trial. But it's the end of the world to them. And there they are. There, that, there's that, that knee is just skinned up. I'm never going to ride that bike again. And they're just looking, they're just looking, their eyes are just like this, looking at that, you know, abrasion and the whole thing. They're completely consumed. 
by the situation that they're in. And it's a big one for a kid. Now what does a parent do? Reaches down, puts their hand under their chin, lifts their head up to them, and then begins to speak comfort and begins to minister context, encouragement, a, a, a sense of the bigger picture here that this is not the end of the world. And so parents are lifting children's heads all of the time. And so God does the same thing in our lives. We find ourselves in the miserable circumstances sometimes. The Lord does the same thing. We don't even know how he did it. We just know somehow that divine finger went down and our head went up. We're completely paralyzed by the circumstances. How did I ever get my focus back on God? Another reason to love him, another reason to praise him, he did it. And so David ascribes to the fact that he survived that day and to live another day because God was the lifter of his head. And we may sit here uh, tonight and think, boy, well, that's nice for David. What about me? How does God lift my head? God lifts our head every single day. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, teach us how to pray. Jesus said, after this manner, pray. Our Father, which art in heaven. That line of that prayer is intended to do in our lives what God did in David's life 3,000 years ago. I can't tell you what it means to me because I use that prayer as a a kind of a model for, for my daily prayer. And when I, 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 I have prayed that, I can't even number the number of times I have prayed that line. And I'll wake up tomorrow morning and I will pray it again and it will impact me like I've never prayed it before. Because my world is different in a day. Your world is different in a day. Things have changed. And then just to remember, our Father which art in heaven. That is the bigger context in which we are living our lives and dealing with the situations in our lives. And it makes all the difference in our lives and the day that we are uh, heading into. And the result uh, for David was, he said, I cried to the Lord with my voice. He heard me from his holy hill. And Selah, and then As he had prayed and God had lifted up his head, he said, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. He slept that night. (laughs) He took a bottle of what in order to sleep on that particular night? He slept that night. And on a day that he should have been absolutely wiped out by this great, revolt against him. Not only wonder of wonders did he have the ability to fall asleep and get a good night's sleep, but then he survived the night and he woke up and then he declared, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me. And so um, and if this is in light of the fact that his attention, his head has been lifted to God. And then he cried out to the Lord, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck 
all of my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. And so he prays with it. He's filled with this bold confidence that God gives us when we begin to see our circumstances in the light of God rather than seeing God in the light of our circumstances. If I see God in the light of my circumstances, he's like a little green army man. And so what we've got to do is just see our circumstances in the light of him. And then here is this great boldness and confidence that was introduced into his life. And so he asked the Lord to defeat his enemies there and with the idea that they would not take over his reign that had been given to him by God and that these wicked rulers would not end up ruling uh, God's people. So out of a concern uh, for God's uh, people. And so full of peace and and uh, the great, I think the great beautiful theme just for our own devotional hearts is that uh, God is going to always come into our situation. He's always going to save us from the circumstances that we're in. And uh, he's always going to have the final say about every situation in our life. And in the meantime, he will always be faithful to lift our heads as we see, as, as we have need of it. What a faithful, faithful God he is. Now, in, in uh, Psalm 4 is a prayer uh, to pray before uh, bedtime. And so here you have, uh, again, you've got the finest sleep aid in the whole world right here in, this, in the form of, of uh, Psalm 4 here. And so he's basically going to encourage us, don't take your cares uh, in life to bed with you. Lift them up to the Lord, cast the cares on God, and then go to sleep. And so this is the encouragement of Psalm 4. He says, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And he, he calls God the God of my righteousness and that God knows that he's innocent of of any kind of wrongdoing. He said, you have relieved me of my distress. In other words, he speaks as one who has a long history with God and God's faithfulness. He said, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. And here's his problem. He said, how long, O you sons of men, will you uh, turn my glory to shame? And how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? And so wicked men were slandering him. They were trying to ruin his uh, reputation. But he went on and said, but know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. He will hear when I call him. Be angry and do not sin. That's an interesting line. It's in the New Testament. We'll talk about it in just a moment. But there is, there is righteous anger and there is unrighteous anger. If you say, by, the Bible says, be angry. Don't forget the rest of the verse. So, man, when I drive, I, I drive just the way God tells me to. Be angry. It says, be angry and don't sin. So there, is, there must be a righteous anger. There must be a sin that, or an anger that is not sin. Jesus was angry in his ministry. He cleared that temple twice, and he was really upset. He wasn't under the control of anger, but it was a righteous anger over what these religious leaders were doing to God, God's reputation, his name, what they were doing to people who were trying to draw close to God. 
And so a righteous anger is an anger that we will have because of what people are doing to other people innocently or what's being done to the reputation of God. An unrighteous anger almost always comes from what somebody is doing to me. How dare they do that to me? Don't they know who I am? And I don't even have to be a somebody to feel that. (laughs) So there's that self, whole self-dominated thing related to an unrighteous anger and usually what what it comes out of. And so he says, be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed. So here it is. You're sitting on the edge of your bed getting ready to lie down on your pillow and uh, your sleep train or all of these things that people can sleep on. So you're sitting on the edge of your bed. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. And so he encourages us here to pray before we go to sleep. Now, Usually when we go to sleep, some people go to sleep instantly. Lord, I just want (laughs) to... Can't even thank Him for the day. You're gone. Other people, they're just like this, you know, for hours and stuff. And they pray every promise in the Bible before they go to sleep. You know, all kinds of different people. Not only in the world, but in a marriage. So I fall asleep just like, bonk, gone. My wife, she's never told me she has a root of bitterness. It takes her forever to fall asleep. There I'm just snoring away. I don't really snore, but I mean just snooze and have the time of my life. And she's looking at the clock, you know. So, but when we, when we do lay down in our bed, what usually happens is our heart starts to quiet and uh, it becomes a meditative time. Whether we like it or not, the events of the day flood in. And we begin to think about the events of the day. And it's really easy at that time to brood over the wrong things that people have done to us. And it's a bad time to get all that churning and all. And so what do we do with those things where where people have uh, done something unrighteously against us? David tells us we need to pray before we go to sleep. We need to uh, cast these cares upon the Lord. Now, verse 4 is quoted by the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. He quotes the the psalm and then he declares, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And what he encourages us there in the book of Ephesians is that we need to address every cause for anger on a daily basis before the day is over. And that includes righteous anger or somebody has really done something unfairly against us. We can say, that's a righteous anger. I'm holding on to that. That gives me life, fire in my bones. No, no, he says, even a righteous anger, these things are to be lifted up uh, to, uh, to the Lord and, uh, and it, before we go off into sleep. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves having trouble uh, going to sleep. He said, Selah, which means, you know, meditate or pause there and think about what has been written before you hurry on through the rest of even the psalm. He said, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the, count, the light of your countenance upon us. Lord, let your, the light of God's countenance, a countenance is this, your face. <laughs> and a light countenance is a countenance that's looking at you beaming. That's as good as I can do. God does a lot better than that. 
So the idea is to have someone's favor when they're smiling at you. That's like a grandpa or grandma. I mean, that's, just, that's, a, that's the countenance. God's countenance is even more. And so, Lord, just lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. And he just thanks God for the privilege of being able to live a godly life, um, even though it means that by living that godly life, uh, sometimes you're going to be slandered uh, for that or ill-spoken of within the family or among friends or whatever at school, whatever the case might be. But he declares, when he speaks about the season that their grain and wine increase, that's the harvest. And, he, and what he's saying is, God, I, I get more, I enjoy my life more on just a humble, regular day than the wicked do on the day they bring the harvest in, the greatest day of their life. And I, I would contend from my own experience, I get more joy out of a cup of tea and two pieces of toast in the morning than the, as a Christian than the greatest day I ever knew as a non-Christian. And God makes all of the difference. It's a privilege to live this life. And then he says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. He can go to sleep now. He's lifted it up to God. God's going to take care of it. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And so speaking about the very best way to end a day is to end it in prayer before we go to sleep. Don't take the cares of this world into sleep. Make sure we cast them up on the Lord. There's no better way to end a day than uh, certainly not with a remote in our hands. The greatest day we can, the way we can end a day is in prayer to the Lord. And it might be a good thing to just think about. I mean, sometimes this can be a complete new psalm to a lot of us or something that we haven't really thought of. And say, man, I have so much trouble sleeping and I've bought six mattresses and 18 months and the whole thing. You say, well, save yourself some money and lift these things up to the Lord, whether it's five minutes in prayer or 30 minutes in prayer. Before you go to sleep, it might not be uh, the mattress. And then in uh, chapter 5, or um, Psalm 5 here, we get into still the same theme of prayer. We go from evening prayer in Psalm 4, and we go uh, to morning prayer in Psalm 5. And so in the morning, David speaks here of, of, uh, of the morning, his morning time with the Lord. He said, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray, my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. And so David is talking and gives us a great key, a great insight into one of the keys of his greatness was time that was spent with God in a personal relationship. We call it a devotional time or a quiet time with the Lord. Christianity is a relationship. It's a relationship with God. And you, a relationship is only as good as the communication that goes on, the currentness of the relationship, the investment in the relationship. I mean, every husband, every wife, parents, children, all of us understand that. But that's the same thing that's true of our relationship 
with God. And so it requires time. It requires daily time. I say, I say requires not in the sense of, boy, we're going to put you in a headlock and force you to do that. It's a privilege to do this. But, but it does in order for the rela- any relationship to be healthy. Uh, it, it requires that time. No Christian life will ever ultimately, no relationship with God will ever rise for any length of time above the devotional life of the saint. It just won't because that's where the relationship is nurtured and where it's developed. And so here's this quiet time that he had with God that he speaks of here. I am convinced that God will never stop working in a Christian's life until this becomes the most important part of our lives above everything else. Even as Job wrote about the Word of God, he says, it, uh, it's more necessary than, it, it, this is more important than my necessary food. Now, necessary food is not dessert. Necessary food is the, the protein and the vegetables and the fruit and the things that get us through life. And yet Job said, I would rather go without necessary food than to go without the Word of God in my life. And so God will always be working in our lives until that daily time, just like with David, until that is established in our life as a characteristic of our life. And one of the reasons, and there's lots of reasons, but we're doing an overview, kind of. And so we don't get into all of them, but it's fascinating you cannot be like Christ without a morning devotional time. Can't do it. Over and over again in the Gospels, he would awake early in the morning, earlier than all of the other disciples would wake up, and he would spend time with his heavenly Father. And we're told in Isaiah, one of the prophecies, one of the great prophecies concerning the Messiah there, it describes all of the great things that the Messiah is going to do when, it, when he comes, but it describes the devotional life of the Messiah. I think, it's, I think it's Psalm 50, the devotional life of the Messiah, how he will seek God in the morning. Fascinating that God would say, listen, one of the things I want you to recognize Jesus as the Messiah based upon the Scriptures is his commitment to morning time with the Father. And so it's the characteristic of, of a life that's lived like Christ. Now, I know that if I want to do like a guilt got you with any group of Christians in a room, the easiest thing to do it is to do it in the realm of prayer related to our lives or related to a devotional life. And, so, and I don't have any intention of doing that. But sometimes you listen to pastors and they talk about you need to get a quiet time and you need to have a devotional time. And you think like we go to some kind of a seminar and seminary and then they just put that, uh, we have to listen to that while we go to sleep. You have to have a devotional time. You have to have a quiet time with the Lord. Say that as often as you can to any congregation that you're pastoring. But it isn't that kind of a motivation. It is, it is, it, it gets spoken by people that have this as a part of their life with that kind of frequency and that kind of an urgency because they know the blessing that it is in their own life. And so start somewhere if that hasn't occurred yet in your life. And we have these daily breads that we put in the literature racks or put around the different places, rather, in, in the church that you can pick up. And it gives you a schedule for reading all the way through the Bible every year. 
a devotional thought for the day based upon a particular passage in the Scripture, something to chew on uh, during the day. You can read that and do that in 15 or 20 minutes and then pray to the Lord and then let the Lord build that into what it needs to be as it relates to your life. And so the importance of this uh, devotional time, and I noticed that David said here, and I will look up, so it isn't like God just takes and says, you know, dwizzled, 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 time for this one to come home. That was a cartoon, by the way, when I was growing up. Mr. Wizard! Actually, forgive me for mentioning it. But the... Um, so it doesn't like God casts us some kind of a thing on us, an angel dust falls on us, and we automatically do it. it. David said, I will do this. I will look up. I will make this a part of my life. And, and it, it was a commitment on his part. And then it turned into a discipline and then the most important part of his life. Does it require reprioritizing our life in order to make that uh, a part of our lives? Absolutely. But David was willing to do that. And you notice, I like it in verse 2, out of this whole time with the Lord, he declared the Lord to be my king and my God. David's the king of Israel. And yet every day when he would meet with God, he would realize that I'm not the king. I'm a little king under the big king. And that's always a good thing for a king or any child of God uh, to understand and, and to, to realize. And so this is how he started uh, the day, and, uh, and it's really just beautiful. And then he continues and he says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, and nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. And the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. We say, how does that work? Well, it kind of works like this. So he has his morning time with the Lord. And then before, as a part of his quiet time with the Lord, before he heads out to the door, he determines, he's basically saying to God, God, listen, I've got this quiet time with you in the holiness, the sanctuary of my home, but I'm going to head out into a world that's wicked, and I'm going to face temptations out there that I don't allow into my home and I don't face here, and there's going to be a lot of opportunity to compromise and disobey you, so I choose before I leave the safety of this holy time with you, I choose to walk with you today, and I choose from this place, I make a decision on how I'm going to respond to all temptation that I'm going to face for the rest of this day. I'm going to say no to those temptations, and I'm going to say yes to you. And it's an important part of a quiet time. Remember Jesus, when he, again, he gave us the model of the Lord's Prayer, and one of the lines in that is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's that same recognition before we head out the door in the morning. Lord, I'm heading out into a wicked world, and before I do, before the first temptation arises, I choose from this place to choose you. So then at 10 o'clock, when the temptation comes and it bursts on the scene, you say, instead of being surprised, Oh, no, what am I going to do? We never do that outwardly. It's what's going on inside of us. We look and we say, I've been waiting for you, buckaroo. No. The decision's already been made. We're not making the decision on the spur of the moment. And so, again, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer that he gave us, he's really covering all the bases for us. But as for me 
He said, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy, speaking of uh, the tabernacle, and in the fear of you I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. Now David had the tabernacle right there in Jerusalem, so each day he would make his way to the tabernacle, worship the Lord right there. You say, well, boy, could the church arrange to like put a tabernacle in my backyard so that I could have the same conveniences that David had? You're the tabernacle. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The, the word that is used for the, the, the holiness of the temple the holy of holies, where the presence of God dwelt, that, that is the description is, that is given of our lives because we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You say, well, boy, what do I do with my quiet time and spending time with the Lord when I'm on a business trip? Hey, anywhere you go is a holy place. It doesn't have to be a particular room or chair in the house. And so this, the, the beauty of it and, and his love for uh, you know, the things of God, worshiping the Lord, his love for fellowship, these kind of things, the house of the Lord. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part, speaking of his enemies, is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled uh, against you. And so he called on God to judge the wicked and limit their influence in his kingdom is a part of his daily crying out to the Lord. But let those who rejoice, uh, let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy. When's the last time you shouted for joy? Don't do it right now. It's okay to shout. Shout for joy. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. So in other words, as he heads out the door, he heads out into life confident in God's blessing his life today and that God is going to keep him that day. And that's the confidence that we head out into a day and when we take that time to see that day in the light of the Lord, give that day to the Lord. And so this beautiful, beautiful testament here in Psalm 5 to the importance of mourning prayer. And then in Psalm 6, he says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. And Psalm 6 is a psalm of repentance. It's the first of seven that are in the Psalms. So he's in the middle of a very, very large uh, trial, and he describes his troubles. O Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, trouble Uh, Heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? And so here he is. He's in this uh, situation that he's in. And uh, he's he's in the middle of a great illness of some kind in his life that he understands to be God uh, chastening him for some unnamed reason. He thinks he's going to die of this. He said, Return, O Lord, deliver me. Oh, save me for your mercy's sake. 
For in death there is no remembrance of you in the grave who will give you thanks. Sometimes when you read something like verse 5 and it, it's, it, this kind of thing is spoken of uh, somewhat frequently in the Old Testament, they did not have the revelation of eternity or heaven or hell that we have in the New Testament. And so they really did see through a glass darkly on, on those things. And so he's kind of using in terms of the Old Testament, there isn't a lot in the Old Testament about kind of speaking about what happens after death and, what, and, and revelation concerning heaven. And so he speaks of the fact that, God, you're, you're punishing me, you're chastening me, but what good will it do when I die? It's going to lessen the world from one more voice that is alive uh, to give you praise and to give you thanks. He said, I'm weary with my groaning. And so uh, all night I make my bed to swim. What poetic language. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows old because of all of my enemies. And so he's speaking of the fact that his nights are not being spent uh, resting or sleeping, but groaning and weeping uh, over his enemies who were using the situation in order to bring added trouble to David. And then in verse 8, it's uh, almost like somewhere between verse 7 and verse 8, he uh, pops out a can of spinach like Popeye, and all of a sudden he's got these muscles that he didn't have for the first uh, seven verses. And so this Beautiful change occurs at verse 8, and then he stands up to those that are working against him. Depart from me, all you workers uh, of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed uh, suddenly. Now, what what... Uh, produces the change in David from being in this place where he's kind of overwhelmed by his circumstances to now being bold about his future and the dismal future of, of his enemies. And he tells us twice, and, and it's repeated uh, and spoken of once in verse 8 and again in verse 9 in the phrase where he says, "The Lord, for the Lord has heard, the Lord has heard. And so the psalm ends in this beautiful peace in David's life, and uh, his faith is really firmly planted in God. He's got this great confidence concerning the future, and it has all occurred because of prayer, but even more out of the recognition that the Lord has heard his prayers. So everything changes with the knowledge that not only are we able to pray to God, but that God actually answers our prayers and things change as a result of it. And we're going to see this over and over and over again in the Psalms, and I'll mention it, out some, mention it somewhat frequently as we go through until you start throwing things at me uh, to get me to stop. But we see it over and over again in the Psalms where the Psalms begin, and you'll notice it related to your own study of the Psalm. They begin with a psalmist just down in the dumps. He is under the circumstances. How are you doing? Well, under the circumstances, you know. And there's a bringing out all of these things. And then suddenly there's a change at some point in the psalm. And then he becomes triumphant and everything changes. And the psalm ends on this, you know, great theme of, uh, of, of victory. 
And, and so uh, they begin in that way. This one is like that. And then they end with this kind of shout of confidence and, and praise because of prayer. And what changed, made David change here was the fact that God hears the prayer. There's an old saying that says, prayer changes things. And it really is true. I think it's important every time we pray, whether we see it or not, any situation that you pray for is different after the prayer as it was before the prayer. You may not see it, but it has made that kind of an effect. God would never call us to engage in a vain activity or useless, just nothing, uh, empty uh, activity. He wouldn't have us wasting our time or his time. Prayer really does change things, and it changes circumstances. Never doubt that about anything that you pray related to. You pray for your children. You pray for your parents. You pray for your work. You pray for whatever circumstance. That situation is different because you prayed for that situation. That's the truth about it. But the other thing that's great about the fact that prayer changes things is it really does. But the first thing that it so often changes is that it changes the person that does the praying. It changes us. Because as we pray, we begin to see the problems now in the light of God, in the light of His resources, rather than in the light of our you know, severely meager resources. So everything changes because I'm looking at the problem and I'm seeing it in the light of the dollar fifty that I have in my pocket. And then I pray and I see it in the light of God's riches and His power and everything changes uh, as a result. Another good reason to pray, and we see it represented over and over again in the Psalms, is that God promises to, when we pray, to exchange our worries with His peace. Now, how good of a deal is that? If you saw like a, a TV commercial come on in, come on, you call this number and I'll give you my peace for your worries for free. <laughs> Put it on speed dial and repeat. And that's quite an offer that God makes. And, and he's true to it every single time. Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, how peaceful is God tonight? He's pretty peaceful, very peaceful. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds through Christ Jesus. He promises to make that exchange. Somebody says, wait a second. It's a good thing you don't allow questions. Because I have lifted things up to the Lord and I have not experienced him exchanging his peace for my anxiousness. What do you say to that? That's why I don't take questions from the audience when I'm teaching. <laughs> no, my answer to that is pray until it happens. Just pray until it happens. And it will happen. God's whole reputation is bound up in every single one of his promises. He promises to do it. So we want it to happen in 90 seconds. Or we want it to happen in five minutes. I'm just like you. I'm not putting anybody down. I, I understand all of it. But there are times where 
on one day what we're facing in life, God gives us that peace very, very quickly and we head out the door. And then there are other times where we're facing something and what is the normal time of lifting things up to the Lord and waiting on Him, that won't suffice for that day. And so sometimes we get this devotional life and we talk about it being, you know, a half hour, an hour, whatever the deal, and set up this time kind of thing. It's a very living thing. It's a very personal thing, very daily thing. And sometimes what was sufficient yesterday in order to walk out the door with God's peace is not enough for today. And so we just wait until we have the peace. And the peace comes when we have finally, usually when we have finally cast the last bit of care related to that situation upon him. And we realize, okay, this thing does not turn on me, but it turns completely upon you and you are always faithful. And so the importance of, wait, you know, wait until praying until God sends that peace right from his throne into the chair that you're sitting on. And then you say, all right, the exchange has occurred. And then you can move forward. And so the theme of this beautiful psalm, Psalm 6, is the peace that results from prayer and out of the confidence that God hears our prayers. And, and to know that God hears is, and that he knows is enough. Is that, and when I lift things up to God and I, say, and I know that he already knows, but he wants me to lift them up to him, not for his sake, but for my sake, it's all right. God knows. And to know that he knows is to know enough to be able to walk in peace. And I love the, the, in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, it reminds us that while we're waiting for God to work or while we're waiting in a situation, God is always working. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. And so to know that he has heard my prayer is to know that he has gone to work in this situation. You can't put it in any better hands than that. And so now we can walk in peace. And then in Psalm uh, 7, we have the uh, song of the slandered saint. And so David is being opposed here and slandered by a Benjamite by the name of Cush. You see that in the uh, subtitle of it, a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush. That's the name of a man who came from the tribe of Benjamin, which was Saul's tribe, so maybe written earlier in David's uh, uh, life when the, you know, the tribe of Benjamin was really opposed to him because they were loyal uh, to Saul. And so this man is is uh, slandering him. Uh, if all of us, and one of the great things about this psalm and the lesson of this psalm is I don't care who any of us are, and any of us is a Christian, all of us are going to get slandered. Jesus said, listen, if they've done it to your master, they're going to do it to you. <laughs> your servant is not greater than his master. And so there's going it's just the way that it is. There's just slander as a part of life. And so how in the world do we deal with it? And so David here, he tells us how to handle it. He says, O oh Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion 
rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. And so he calls on the Lord to protect him from what is, again, a very dangerous situation that he's in, very vicious attack of, of slander and false accusation by this man who apparently was, was uh, intent upon doing considerable damage uh, to David as a result of it. And so David said uh, his first response to the slander was he got on the phone and he told every one of his friends, you know what that Cush the Benjamite's saying about me? He's calling me this and he's calling me that and all. And I tell you, I want you to get on Facebook and tell everybody else about it. I want the whole world to know it and I want Shaquille O'Neal to tweet about it. Or whoever else is tweeting out there this thing. So the first temptation is, oh, yeah, well, I'll tell you. You think you can slander? You ain't met a slander like me. I'll tell you. I'm fire, fire, fire. You put the wrong goddamn. I didn't just swear. I was just saying something. So what's the first thing he does? He prays. Oh, there's an old saying. I have rarely regretted something I didn't say. I've regretted a lot of what I've said, but I've rarely regretted what I didn't say. And especially when we're being slandered and in that kind of a situation, boom, we can enter into that, repaying evil for evil, and we will regret it. So he responds with prayer. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, If there's iniquity in my hands, if I've repaid evil to him who was at peace with me or I've plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust, say law. It's his way of saying, God, you know I'm innocent of any accusations of wrongdoing. And then he calls on God to rise up and vindicate him, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the people, uh, you know, lest this... Uh, wicked men come to reign. He said, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the people shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. He's not saying that he's perfect or sinless. He's just saying that he's innocent of of these charges. He says, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, speaking of the wicked, God will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and he makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. And so he calls on God to bring an end to the wickedness of the wicked. And then he goes on to declare, Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and he brings forth falsehood. He made a pit, he dug it out, and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head, and violent dealings shall come down on his own 
crown. And so he was confident that the Lord uh, would defend him in the situation and turn the tables on this Cush the Benjamite. And then here is the great lesson of the psalm, verse 17. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. No matter what anybody else is doing to us in our lives, God is always righteous and he is always worthy of our praise. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And so the lesson of Psalm 9 or 7 here, we must never allow slander in our lives against us to ever silence our song to God and our worship of God. That's the worst thing that can happen. We get in, now we're going to fight fire with fire. We're going to get on and we're going to do the whole thing. And here we're engaged in this whole thing. And we've got this, this most beautiful God imaginable that we have an opportunity anytime we want to, to sing his praises and to bless his name and to lift up worship to him. And so the lesson of the psalm is to never allow slander to, to distract us from our worship of the Lord and to never allow slander to silence our praise to him or to rob us of our joy. Jesus never allowed that to happen, and he is our example. Well, we'll stop there uh, tonight, and we'll pick it up, uh, uh, Lord willing, in uh, Psalm 8 next week. And I'd like the worship team to come forward and lead us in a little bit of worship as we close this evening. We've certainly primed the pump for worship, haven't we? Some of you would have just written me a nasty letter. Say, here you are, you're teaching the Psalms, you know, give us a chance to worship at the end of the thing, you know. So Psalm 3, God is the lifter of our head. Psalm 4, prayer, the best sleeping aid available. Psalm 5, the importance of morning devotionals. That's the best way to start a day and, uh, the, and the best way to have a great day. Psalm 6, God hears our prayers and he answers them. Psalm 7, uh, the song of the uh, slandered prayers our most powerful wo- weapon and never allow it to rob us of our joy and of our worship to the Lord. So, so much to uh, meditate on as we worship the Lord here in closing our service this evening.